Good morning and Boker Tov, and welcome back to Living with Emuna, our weekly really support group to remind ourselves what matters, what's important, how the world is run, what we can control, and much more importantly, what we cannot. Because uh, once a week is not even enough for this support group. The truth is the challenge, particularly in the time in which we're living, that we confront each and every day, every hour, almost every moment, to be able to tap into the piece of us that knows that there's meaning and purpose to the universe, that can turn and rely and feel the presence of our best friend, Hashem Ro'i, Lo Echzar. Hashem is my shepherd. Lo Echzar, may I never be lacking in His shepherding me through life. Every single day it's so easy to forget, to think we're in control, we're in charge, or to think that we are subject of randomness, or that we're victims of nature. But the truth is that we have a Father, a Father in Heaven who loves us, and He's watching over us. And not every time does it feel pleasant or enjoyable, but it always is for a reason and a purpose. And to live with that confidence, and to live with that, that therefore, that sense of calmness, to know that He's there and that everything is for a reason. I want to thank our Emuna Siri sponsors for the year, our friends, Drs. Avi and Bella Morgan, who sponsored Lezecher Nishmas, our dear friend, Rabbi Dr. Brian Galvin. We're coming upon his first year at site. It's really hard to believe the world has been a different and a much uh, less bright place since he's left us. But he was a model of, of Amuna and continues to inspire our Amuna and Bitochan on a daily basis. It's also sponsored by Sal and Leslie Abadie, our dear friends, in honor of their children, Joey and Marissa, who are expecting, please God, should have a healthy baby, a happy baby, a holy baby, and to give them a lot, a lot of nachas. And uh, this just in, also we want to thank Fran and Jerry Weinberg, who are sponsoring this morning in the Schuss of Arichas Yamim, for David Henach Mordechai Bennett Freda Simcha, should have Arichas Yamim continue to inspire and light up the world. And a continued Rufuah Shlema for Eliyahu Ben Shoshan. Thank you all for your generosity and your sponsorship. We are learning, we are continuing. It seems like a never ending piece, but it is finite. It just takes us a long time to get through every line. But this beautiful essay by the author of the Belvavi, Ravita Mar Schwartz, who is describing for us what a life of faith looks like, what a life of Amuna looks like, what it means how when a person has an awareness and a mindfulness and a consciousness that the world is not all about us, we can't take credit and we're not only to blame, that we are not the victims of, of chance, but rather there's meaning and purpose and order, that when we're able to tap into that best part of ourselves, to remember that and to realize that and to calm ourselves down over that, then, then we can rid ourselves of anger and anxiety and envy and arrogance, the worst part of ourselves we can let go, we can tap into and reinforce and promote the better part of ourselves. I'll tell you, the Living with Amun Ashir we do now on Wednesday mornings, you think it's for you, it's a support group for all of us, but the truth is it's really for me because it puts the pressure on me the rest of the week when I'm about to lose it or I'm about to give in to the worst voice that says panic or fear or be anxious uh, or be angry. So what are you doing? You give this class, you preach and teach this each and every week. You can't do that. So with all of us, with all of us, you know, thank God, we, uh, Yechevet and I, have the greatest challenge there is in the world, and I know many people would kill to have this be their challenge, and so we're grateful for it, not complaining about it. But, you know, it's hard to make a simcha anytime. Planning a simcha is complicated. Now try planning a simcha with a moving target, where the rules are changing each and every day and figuring it out. So it's easy to lose your cool. It's easy to grow frustrated. It's easy to throw up your hands and say, what do you want from me? And those are the moments that test us. And we have to realize the best part of ourselves and say, no, it's going to be okay. There's a reason. I plow forward. I do what I do. I do what I know I can do. And I leave the rest up to him. So it's just an example. Each of us are, are challenged almost daily 
with reminding ourselves that to live with Amuna is to live with his presence, is to live and see the world through harmony. As we've been talking about now for months, the external voice, the external sense of self, it's battling. It's involved in conflict and tension. And the external sense of self, from the moment we wake up until we fall asleep, has to manipulate, maneuver, calculate, conquer. But the inner sense of self, the Tzelem Elokim, the godliness in us, the godliness in us sees harmony and peace in the universe. Says, I'm willing to let go and let God. I need to take my initiative and I need to do what I need to do. And beyond that, it's entirely up to Him. I shared with you the quote that anxiety is the tension between the now and the then. Please God, there'll be a wedding in August. Between now and then is anxiety. How do we get from now to then? But the then's going to be wonderful. It's going to be beautiful. So if you had a crystal ball and you could fast forward to the then and you could see that the then is going to work out, however it's going to work out, 10 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people, the then is going to work out. Then you don't have to experience the anxiety. What do we, what do we lose? You know, the anxiety that fills for the now to the then, it costs us mental health, emotional health, physical health. It sabotages our relationships, our creativity, our sleep, our success. The anxiety has never ever actually generated anything good. There's not a positive outcome that comes out of it. Now I know sometimes when you're a little bit anxious, you'll work a little bit harder and you'll think a little bit more strategically, but you don't need anxiety in order to do that. You just need you. The anxiety itself literally depletes us and debilitates us and it, and it beats us up. What do we give up in that process? So anxiety is the tension between getting from the now to the then. So just fast forward to the then and get a little window and a glimpse and say, the then is gonna be good. The then is gonna work out. And if it doesn't and it's not good, the then doesn't always have the positive outcome. The person I daven for or prayed for or the lab results that I've been waiting for or whatever the, the then is, the then always doesn't have the outcome that I hope for. But you know what? There's a day after nonetheless. There's a day after, there's a recovery, there's a putting one foot in front of the other. So the anxiety is never positive, it's never helpful. Skip from the now to the then with your crystal ball, fast forward to the then, and then live backwards to the now with a sense of serenity and peace by speaking and listening to the better voice, the inner voice, the godly voice that's inside each and every one of us. Oh, we continue. So lately, Rav Schwartz is developing the idea that Many of us, too many of us, have an overconfidence where we think that life is about us. We're self-assured, we're self-confident, we have too much self-esteem, where we think I can control and micromanage and manipulate, I'm in charge of everything, I can take responsibility and credit for everything. And we also have a overconfidence in all types of um, things around us. For example, the army. The police, they're all kinds of scientists, doctors, medicines, all kinds of influences and powers around us. We have confidence in them, we should, and it's good, and we need them, and we should fund them. But we can't have an overconfidence in them. What does he mean? When a person makes a mistake and thinks, there's nothing that can oppose them. There's no force opposite them. There's no tension with them. If only I can get them, whoever the them is, the elected official, the police, the army, the doctor, the lawyer, the judge, whoever the them is, if I could get the them on my side, then there's no opposing force, there's no battling, there's no tension. It's a mistake, says Rav Schwartz, because whatever level of empowerment that address or those people have, 
and there is a lot of empowerment in this world, there is nothing, and I repeat, there is nothing and there is no one who does not pose, who does not face opposing forces, who does not have to battle, that does not have Misha Misnaged, something opposite them, except for the Almighty, except for God. God is the only one who wills and wants, and it is. There is no impediment, there's no obstacle, there's nothing opposing. God is infinite, omnipotent, divine, providence, dominion. And for God, therefore, everything He wills is. God is the only being, God is the only entity, God is the only that doesn't have any hisnagduyos, has nothing opposite or, or opposing Him. Everything and everyone else, for every force, there's an equal and opposite force. It's a law of science. Ledugma, for example, says Rav Schwartz, Yiladim k'tani shalahem. Young children, the younger you are, the more they trust in their parents. Every child runs into a problem. What do they do? Mommy! Daddy! Abba! Tati! Whatever they call you. Mommy! Daddy! They come, they scream, they yell, bail me out! The little child, bail me out, my hands are sticky, bail me out, my sibling's annoying me, bail me out, my teacher's treating me unfairly, bail me out, pay my bills, bail me out, bail me out of where I am that I don't want to be, at every age the level goes up. But children think that their parents can come and save them. Their parents can helicopter in and their parents will bail them out, literally or figuratively. That is a natural, innate within a child. And that makes sense because from when the child is born, who literally who literally nourishes the child, if not the parents, who protect and nourish and take care and nurture that child. So it cultivates and conditions the child as they grow to think and to believe, call mommy and daddy, call mommy and Abba. Mommy and Abba can take care of everything. They'll set the teacher straight, they'll set the principal straight, they'll set the camp straight, the rule straight, they'll set everything straight. Mommy and Abba They'll set the Apple store straight. They'll take care of it all. Even if, God forbid, there's a fire in the home, the child calls for mommy or Abba. The community knows, sadly, about a fire in the home. There's a fire in the home, and the child screams for mommy or Abba, Save me! Rescue me! Says Rav Schwartz, but we know. The parent knows that the parent will go to the end of the earth. The parent will exert and express every effort, every ounce of their being and their strength to try to intervene and save a child in every circumstance, to do everything they can to bring happiness to their child. But the parent also knows that they're limited and they're finite. In the end of the day, they could try everything they can try, but in the end of the day, they have to throw up their hands because they're not in charge, they're not in control, and in the end of the day, they can't do it all. They can't necessarily save the child from the fire. We can't necessarily have the funds to bail them out of their debt. And we can't necessarily repair that relationship. And we can't necessarily give them the baby that they so badly want. And we can't necessarily help them overcome that addiction or their struggle. However hard the parent tries, the parent knows. It's a very, I've been there. I've been there and tried to counsel and help and support and love. And every parent knows about themselves. It is a very sobering and humbling moment when you accept and realize that with everything you try, and as much as you feel that you've spent your life doing everything, you come in to fix it, to fix it. You're the fix-it man. Abba's the fix-it man. Mommy's the fix-it woman. You fix things. You fix things. 
this thing isn't working, my laptop's not working, the lamp isn't working, my friendship's not working, and you've always come in and you fixed it. Why can't you fix this for me? Fix this and give me a baby. Fix this and make him fall in love with me. Fix this and let me get that job. Fix this and give me back my health. Fix this. Why can't you fix it? And every parent has that moment of truth where they realize that no matter how hard they try and no matter, no matter skills or powers or blessings they have, they can't fix everything. They can't. So with children, they realize sometimes. At some point, the children realize my parents can't fix everything. And even though I've been conditioned from my youth and my adolescence to think that my parent can helicopter in and swoop in and fix it, I realize my parents are finite. And there are things that they confront and they face. There are tensions and battles that I have that not my parents and nobody can come in and can fix. So the same way that the child, because of a certain level of emotional or, or cognitive immaturity, the same way that the child makes the mistake of thinking that the parent can always fix it and bail it out, that my parent has no conflict or confrontation or battle, so too we as adults also make that mistake. We have the arrogance or we have the um, overconfidence to think that we or those we have access to can fix anything and everything. But you need to understand and we need to understand clearly that what? We need to know that just as the child has that moment where they realize as much as I love and admire my parent, and as much as I look up to them, they can't and they don't have the power to fix and to remove and to overcome every obstacle, so too we as adults need to look at our lives and realize that we, not the police, not the lawyer, not the doctor, not the scientist, not money, not power, not fame, there is nothing in this world, and there's nothing you can have, and there's no one you could know that can absolutely eliminate the things you will confront and that you will battle. I don't care who you are or how much money you have. Coronavirus doesn't discriminate or care how many friends or followers you have online, how much money you have in the bank account, how popular you are among your friends. It doesn't matter and it doesn't make a difference who you have access to or what you have or how beloved you are. There is no one and there is nothing that doesn't have his nagdus, that doesn't face challenges and obstacles and battles and tensions. It's what it means to be alive. It's what it means to be in this world. It's what this world is filled with. It's what this world is all about. So just as the immature and unsophisticated and undeveloped child makes the mistake of thinking, mommy and Abba, as long as I have them on my side, I'm good to go. They can fix it. They'll fix everything and anything. They'll fix my teacher and my principal, and they'll fix my technology, and they'll fix my friends, and they'll fix whatever trouble I get into, and mommy and daddy will always bail me out. And the child gets to a stage and they realize, no, they can't. I love my parents, I admire my parents, but they're human beings, and no, they can't. So too, we as adults need to have the same realization. We need to recognize, we need to come to the same level of maturity and sophistication. That there is nothing and there's no one who can bail us out of everything. Of everything. Except for one. There is one. There is one with whom we can have a relationship. And there's one we can turn to and we can rely on and lean on. And there is one in our life if we let him in, if we feel his presence, if we embrace his love, 
if we talk to him and confide in him and thank him and even protest him. But there is one who faces no obstacle and there is no tension. So we can live our external sense of selves and battle, battle, battle and fear, fear, fear and envy, envy, envy. Or we can express and tap into our inner sense of self that leans on and that talks to and that feels his presence and that says there's nothing that's too big or too hard for him. That he's got it all covered and he's got my back. And he's got my back. There's nothing a bank can do to guarantee a loan. You can have guarantors co-sign on the loan, but you're not necessarily going to collect that money. So the bank, when you go to the bank and you take out a loan, the bank wants to create all kinds of guarantees. And what are the guarantees that the bank creates? You need co-signers, you need collateral, I'm taking first position on the apartment, so if you default on the loan, I'm simply taking back the property. The bank takes countless steps. So says of Schwartz, but you know, there could be a sinkhole and the hole swallows up the whole house, the whole apartment falls into the sinkhole. God forbid a missile can land. Coronavirus can come. The unexpected, a pandemic can wipe out things in ways that you never ever imagined or pictured beyond anyone's imagination. So there are no guarantees. With everything you do to try to guarantee, with everything you do to try to back up, there are no guarantees. Even though these things don't happen, they don't happen often. So thank God banks lend with credit. If we didn't have credit, the whole economy would freeze, would be at a standstill. Credit requires faith. And thank God banks have faith and they lend with credit and the economy can continue because they know that those wild things don't often happen. But it'd be foolish and unwise for anyone to lead their finances in a way that you felt, I'm invincible, I'm immortal, I'm, in, I'm untouchable. Because we've all heard We've all heard of the people who felt that nothing can bring them down with the unexpected came. The point he's trying to communicate with the bank as an example, as a metaphor, is that there's nothing you can do for guarantees in life. There is nothing you can do for guarantees in life. There are no guarantees for your health, your wellness. There are no guarantees for your mental stability and well-being. There are people who deteriorate. It's the saddest thing in the world. There's no money that can slow down that can slow down dementia. There's no money in the world that can help you recover from illnesses that currently have no cures. It doesn't matter how much money, it doesn't matter how much popularity, it doesn't matter even how righteous you are. There is nothing that you can do or what you can have. So what are you gonna do? Keep trying to chase more, worry more, panic more, try harder? Now there are things that you can do that are wise. You should wear a face, you should wear a mask, and you should practice social distancing. I'm not saying or suggesting, and I, I, I think that those who do are grossly irresponsible. They say, listen, 
It's up to God. Let go and let God and walk around without masks and open everything up and be on top of one another because it's up to God and you can't do anything about it anyway. No, of course there are things we can do about it. There's a way for living healthy. You can live healthy physically, you can live healthy mentally, you can live healthy emotionally, and you can live healthy spiritually. And that's on us to try to live healthy lives. Of course, there's initiative we have to take. There are things we have to do. But once we've done them and we've taken those steps and we're living responsibly, let go. Let go. Because there's nothing you can do to absolutely protect yourself. There's nothing you can do to become immortal. There's nothing you can do to become uh, a person who faces no obstacles or conflicts. So look inside yourself and realize that ultimately you're leaning and relying on Him. Look inside yourself and grab onto. But the Torah is our Yitzchayim to those who hold on to it. Grab onto it. Grab onto it. I don't remember if I said it in this year or others. A couple of weeks ago, Parsha Shlach, we had the mitzvah of tzitzis. And the Medrash likens the mitzvah of tzitzis, the strings that we wear, which correspond to our mitzvah. So if you add up the strings and the knots and the twists, they add up to the 613. And the reason that we wear those strings is to remind us, like a person ties a string around their finger, to remind us of what matters and what our priorities are in a world in which it's so easily to get swept up and to forget. So the Medrash says, it's like a person who's on board a boat. You're on a cruise and you fall overboard and now you're in the water and you're paddling like a madman, a mad woman. You're trying to survive. You're trying to struggle to stay alive. And you're sinking. You're falling. And the captain throws a rope and says, grab the rope and you'll live. If you let go of the rope, you'll be swept away and you'll be swept under and you'll have no future. Grab the rope and you can live. And that's the tzitzis. Grab the rope. Grab the tariq mitzvos. Grab onto Hashem. He is our life preserver. Are we not living in stormy waters? Are there not Category 5 hurricanes happening metaphorically all around us each and every day? Pandemic, pandemonium. Every day we wake up, we don't know which world we're going to find. A couple weeks ago on a Friday, we had tornado-type uh, weather. 55-mile-an-hour winds, trees and tree limbs down everywhere. How much warning did we have? How much preparation could we do? Zero. Bubkis came out of nowhere. Every day you have no idea what's going to be. Grab onto that rope. There's stormy winds. They are around us. They're trying to knock us down and they're trying to drag us under and they're trying to bring us to our end, to our knees. Grab onto the rope and climb up. Grab onto the rope and it gives us balance and stability to stand firm. And that rope is Hashem. Each and every day, talk to Him and turn to Him and thank Him and protest Him. Tell Him what you wish you were doing differently and where you think He's gone wrong and why you want Him to change the edict or the verdict or the way he's treating the people you love or you. Because that too is an expression of faith. Faith is not just being a yes person. Faith is not just going along with whatever God sends our way. Did Avram go along with whatever God sent stone? He stood up and he said, I protest. How could you do this? What if there are 50 righteous, 45, 40, and so on? Did Moshe look the other way when he thought there was evil? He said, God, show me your way. Why do bad things happen to good people? I want to understand. I protest bad things happening to good people. Help me understand. We have a rich tradition of not only saying, God, I'll go with your plan, whatever it is, but also sometimes saying, God, I'd like you to rethink your plan. Here's why I think it's wrong or unfair. Here's where I'd like you to reconsider. I'm protesting. I'm objecting. And you know why that's an incredible expression of faith? Because you don't protest or object to people you don't think exist. You don't protest or object to figments of imagination. 
The fact that you're protesting or objecting or giving your displeasure with what he is doing or what he's done means you believe he's there. And how happy is he to hear from you, even if you're not happy with what he's going to say in the end. And if he doesn't say what we end, if our protest doesn't turn him around, it's not an excuse to be able to walk away. It's part of the relationship to stick with him nonetheless. But he is the constant in a world of variables. We are living a world of variables. Six months, if I would describe to anyone on earth what we're living through now, not one of you would believe me. No one would believe me. Nobody. We are living a life of variables. Every day that we wake up, there are an endless list of variables about our health, our stability, our well-being, our relationships, about the world, about the economy, about politics, about natural disasters, about the weather, about do we not get phone calls or turn on the news and we say, I can't, what, is there a normal day? A neighbor's house burns down by fire? A tornado-like uh, storm comes in out of nowhere? A pandemic strikes and debilitates? And how can you plan for the Yom Naraim this coming year? So our life is filled with variables. There's nothing that we can predict. It's a moving target, our life. Now it's it to the extreme. We're living that under a magnifying glass. But is it ever really different any other time? Is it not really like this every day that we wake up and don't know what that day will bring? Last week on Behind the Bima, our Wednesday night podcast, which everyone is invited to tonight, 9 p.m., we have a great guest, the father of Jewish radio, Nachum Siegel. Very excited to have him on. And last week we were talking about this, and Rabbi Moskowitz uh, you know, gave a great example. It's, it's his to share, not mine, but he shared it last week, that five years ago he woke up one day with a pain and it changed his life forever because he learned that day that he had cancer and thank God he's recovered and he's healthy and he's well and all is good. Thank God and it should just continue for him and for all those who are struggling, should have speedy and complete refuah shlema. But he described, you know, the night before he went to sleep, did he know he'd wake up the next day and it would change his life forever? Our life is filled with variables and differences and changes. There's nothing that's predictable or reliable. There's nothing that we can see coming. There's only one constant in our whole life, and that is God. There's only one constant in a world of variables, and that is God. The people in our lives tragically can come and go, and the financial stability can come and go, and so much of what we've come to rely on or look forward to can come and go easily. The one constant in a life of variables, is the Almighty, is Hashem, is the Ribbon Shalom, is the master of the universe. So like the rope that the captain throws overboard, grab on, he's the captain. And we sometimes feel we've fallen overboard in stormy waters. And he's throwing us a rope, and his rope is called Torah and Mitzvahs, his rope is called Amunah and Bitachon, his rope is called Dvekas. He says, stick with me, I've got your back. Stick with me, and you'll be able to climb out. Stick with me, and you'll be able to survive the stormy waters. Stick with me. Kaddish Baruch who throws us that rope, the question is, do we grab on and do we hold on? Because that will determine and predict our very future. Our very future. Why do we make the mistake? We make the mistake of thinking we're in control. We make the mistake of thinking we can be confident. We make the mistake of thinking that we are in a good position because we have overconfidence. We have overconfidence, not only in ourselves, we have overconfidence in the people and things around us and that we have access to. Let go. Let go of that false belief, that counterfeit view of life and grab onto the rope, the only real truth, the only constant with it, which is Him. Kamur Nefashos, continue with the next section. 
Nefashos kobnei adam morkavos mipnimias vechitzonias. So the soul of everybody is a mixture, is the balance of this external and the internal. It's a balance of the external sense of self, which is battling and struggling and tension and fighting, and the internal sense of self, which is clinging and holding on to the rope, and the two voices, the struggle that goes on. This is not unique to Amuna and Bitachon, this is true. For every time we were tempted to eat the wrong thing and say the wrong thing and go the wrong place, we are made up of an animal and we're made up of a godly spirit. And they're both true. They're both part of who we are. Neither is false or fake. They're both MS and true. Our body, the material part, the physical part of who we are, has every parallel to an animal. We eat and we eliminate what we ate. And we, we eat, we eliminate what we ate, and we reproduce, the Gemara says. These three things gives us everything in common with an animal. Anatomically, we have commonalities with animals. There's an animal impulse and an animal instinct and an animal drive and an animal desire in our lives. Let's just say the Trader Joe's corn chips made their way back into my house this week. The kryptonite came back. It came back. There's that animal impulse, that animal desire, that animal draw. And the animal now says, what do you want? You want it when you want it, how you want it, where you want it, whatever you want it, whether it's yours or not, whether it's good for you or not. There is that voice that just says, go indulge, go enjoy. It's the impulse to act like an animal and live like a pig and eat like a pig. And that's the animal in us. And we need to name it. And we need to call it out, the nafesh behemi, the animal in us. We are animals. Some people are much more animalistic than others. Others have conquered their animal impulse and their animal instinct. But every one of us have that animal instinct impulse, that undisciplined side of ourselves. But we also have a godly soul and a godly spirit. He breathed it into our nostrils. He put it in our being. He put it in our being. And we have the ability to recognize and realize the godly soul. And the godly soul is the epitome of discipline, of self-control, of self-sovereignty. It's the ability to say that I'm not relinquishing and I'm not walking away and I'm not blaming the people around me and I'm not blaming my conditions and I'm not blaming my DNA and I'm not blaming my background, but I'm going to take and I'm going to conquer and I'm going to mold and I'm going to shape who I am and who I'm going to become. I was talking to someone last night and they were talking about the anxiety and the worry throughout this time and the lack of sleep and the thoughts come to his head and he can't, there's nothing he can do. When he has negative thoughts or scary thoughts or anxiety-ridden thoughts, there's nothing he can do, but they take him over. Can't fall back to sleep, can't stop thinking about them, can't move on. And I'm not talking about somebody who's been diagnosed with anxiety, clinical anxiety, which needs legitimate treatment and so on. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about our collective every day, now really on steroids, sense of anxiety, of what is, what will be, what's happening, who, who can't feel anxiety by the lack of certainty we can have in anything today. And I said to him, I said, you realize every sentence you say to me begins with, I can't, I can't, I won't, I don't. I said, I know one thing. If you don't believe that you can control the thoughts, then you won't control the thoughts. That's all I know. How to start controlling them, how to overcome them, how to be able to honor the anxiety and then move on from it, what are the strategies? We could talk about it the rest of the night. But it's not worth even beginning that conversation if you feel that you can't control them. That every thought that comes, you have to allow in. Because if that's your, if that's your assumption, if that's how the conversation begins, then you've already lost. I said, why are you giving up control? Why are you giving that control to someone else? To these thoughts, to the panic, to the worst part of who you are. It begins with, I can, and I will, and I am. That's what it starts with. Why should you concede? Why should you give in? Why should you forfeit the control that you're capable of having and that you in fact have? You can, you do, you will 
Stop saying I can't and I won't. We can. We can realize the godly part of who we are. That's the entire Jewish life. All of Judaism and all Torah and mitzvahs are a platform for advancing our godly spirit over our animal impulse. That's what it all is. What are the laws of kashrus if not saying, don't eat whatever you want whenever you want, only eat what's kosher and make a bracha beforehand. The laws of shmiras enayim, what you look at, shmiras alashon, how you speak, honesty in business, awareness of time. Don't be lazy and sleep in. You've got to get up. You have to daven shacharis by a certain time. Every aspect of tariq mitzvos are a platform for helping our godly soul advance and win triumph over our animal impulse and animal instinct. Every aspect of Torah and mitzvos. So if you start as a Jew by saying, I can't, I'm an animal, it's who I am, it's what I do, I can't overcome it. So then you're right, that's who you will be. But if you start by saying, I roar like a lion, the, very, the Shulchan Aruch begins and opens up with, I roar like a lion. That's how it starts. I roar like a lion. To wake up like a lion. I roar like a lion. I wake up like a lion. Like a lion. By the way, I'll tell you an amazing word. Where did I see this? I didn't get to this, I didn't get to this in the Parsha class yesterday because I ran out of time. But thank God we got the Amina class today. So I'll tell you something from the Parsha. At the end of our of Parsha's Balak, we read two Parshas this week. We're going to catch up and get back in sync with our brothers and sisters in Israel, please God. So we read two Parshas, Chukas and Balak. And Balak, of course, has the story of uh, Bilam being recruited to curse the Jewish people. And in his curses, his attempted curses, which are transformed into blessings, he says, Hein am kum, we're going to get up like a lion. So the Shulchan Aruch begins with the words, Wake up like a lion to greet the day, to serve God. And in these words, the Ramah writes, When you go to sleep, know before whom you're sleeping, and wake up and roar like a lion. And the Pasuk here essentially describes that you're waking up and roaring like a lion, but you're also sleeping like a lion. That's how the Ramah understands it. So why, if the Pasuk describes that we're going to wake up and roar like a lion, do we offer reference the notion of sleeping like a lion? So the Tzadik Rav Meir Pramishlan explains, he says, you know what the skula is to sleep through the night? How can you wake up like a lion if you sleep like a lion? And you know how to sleep like a lion? By realizing, to realize there's a Ribbona Shalom and there's Almighty. Sleep like a baby because you know that a Kaddish Baruch is in charge. Don't wake up every five minutes. Listen, if you're waking up to go to the bathroom, I can't help you there. But if you're waking up every five minutes because you're anxious and you're worried and you're fearful and what will be, and then you can't fall back to sleep, let go and let God. The answer to your sleep problems is Amuna and Bitachon and Dvekas. The answer to your sleep problems is to say, I can control what I think about. I can control those thoughts. I can control those fears. I'm in control. I can do it. I can do it. And just because they knock doesn't mean I have to let them in. Let them knock all they want. They're not welcome here. They can't come in. So a person is the blend and the balance between the external sense of self, the animal part of ourselves, the animal instinct, the animal impulse, the animal desire, the animal impetuousness. But there's also a godly soul and a godly spirit. And it says you're in control and you're in charge and you can conquer and you can do it. 
you can do it. And the question is which one we're going to live with, which one we're going to listen to, which one we're going to promote, which one and which part of ourselves we're going to believe in, which one is calling the shots. Are we the passenger or are we the pilot? Every other one of the metaphors I've given. I'll tell you one of the more... One of the last thing on the Parsha, and then I'll let you go. Because again, I didn't get to this either in the Parsha shir yesterday. Double Parsha, it's going to overflow into living with Amuna. What can I tell you? You have to forgive me. At the end of, at the end of Parsha's Balak, we have the reference to the most bizarre thing you've ever heard in your life. The idolatry that they worshipped in that time was called Baal Pa'or. The Jewish people, Vayitzamed Yisrael the Baal Pa'or. The Jewish people clung to a form of idolatry called Baal Pa'or. Baal Pa'or. What's Baal Pa'or? So we don't really understand idolatry in general. We understand people who worship celebrities and athletes. They worship the mighty dollar. They worship social media. That form of an idolatry we see all around us. You know what the biggest idol that people worship is? The biggest form of idolatry that's going on all around us that people worship. Almost every one of us, it's difficult not to. We all struggle with it. The number one idol that we all worship is ourselves. Ourselves. We worship ourselves. That overconfidence, that overbelief, that overtaking credit, that's idolatry. What is idolatry? It's ascribing power to something other than God. It's believing in something other than God. It's giving into our desire, our instinct, our want, our need, instead of prioritizing His. So anyway, the Torah tells us that there's a form of idolatry, it's called Baal Pa'or. The Jewish people clung to Baal Pa'or. The worship of Baal Pa'or, though, is very baffling. Because Rashi on our Parsha, and I hope you already ate breakfast or you're not eating it right now, but Rashi on our Parsha tells us, do you know what the worship of Baal Pa'or is? Again, you'll excuse me, but it's Torah, I'm just teaching you what it tells us. This is what was happening in the times of the, of the Chumash. Jewish people are wandering through the desert, and this is what's going on in the antiquity. Rashi says that Baal Pa'or is that the people would come before an idol, a stone figure, and they would expose themselves and defecate before the idol. And then they would pull their pants up and walk away. I have a lot of temptations in my life. I struggle with a lot of Yetzirahs. I can tell you, that ain't one of them. Never in my 45 years of life have I been tempted to say, you know, there's a lot of things going on with statues right now. Statues are in the news. I haven't seen anyone say, go to the statue, pull down your pants and defecate, and that's a form of worshiping the idol. And there's a million questions. Where does that temptation come from? What is that all about? How is that worshiping the idol? I could see somebody who wants to defecate on an idol that they think shouldn't exist. They want to take down that idol, so they're defecating. That's the worship of an idol, is to defecate on it? How does that make sense? What was this desire, this drive of Baal Pa'or? So Rav Hutner, the great Rosh Hashiva, Rav Chaim Berlin, the Pachad Yitzchak, the great Rav Yitzchak Kutner explains that this ideology of Baal Pa'or is a manifestation, it's an expression of a philosophy of pessimism. It was the worshiper's way of declaring that actions have no real purpose, that at the end of the day, everything is worthless, that whether one eats a succulent steak or a gorgeous red apple, the end result is it all turns into excrement. That's the statement that was being made. The worship of Baal Pa'or was, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's no order, there's no sense to the universe, Whatever you're enjoying on the way in, it all comes out and it's all a pile of excrement. That's this world. And there are people with that philosophy and ideology. They too are not tempted to thank God, demonstrate this. But there are people who may not demonstrate this on the idol, but they demonstrate it in their lives and in their lifestyle. There's nothing meaningful. There's no purpose. There's no order to the world. It's all just 
random and fake. And in the end of the day, whatever comes in, it all comes out as a big pile of excrement. And such an outlook is exactly the opposite. It's diametrically opposed to the philosophy and the approach of Torah. The Torah teaches us that every action has the ability to build and nothing goes to waste. That even excrement is fertilizer. It has essential life-giving nutrients that can develop that which will nourish you tomorrow. Even the excrement is not garbage. It is the fertilizer to grow what you will eat and what will nourish you tomorrow. That everything in this world has a purpose and nothing is wasted and nothing is lost and everything has meaning and can be transformed and elevated and enriched. I love this insight because it takes the most bizarre, the most peculiar practice and it helps us understand it a little bit more and apply it within our own lives. And so there's that, there's that piece of ourselves that defecates on life and says nothing is meaningful, nothing has order, it's all a waste, what's the point, where is he? And then there's a piece of ourself who says no, everything has meaning. If I grab onto the rope and I hold on to him, I can sleep through the night and then I can rise like a lion. You can't wake up like a lion if you slept like a, you know what they say, I slept like a baby up every hour. Right? If you sleep like a baby up every hour, you're not going to wake up and roar like a lion. But if you wake up, you know how you wake up and roar like a lion? Because you sleep through the night. Because when you fell asleep, you controlled your thoughts. You let go and you let him in. You knew it's up to him and he had control. Grab onto the rope and you'll sleep like a baby. Wishing everyone a happy, a healthy, and a holy day. See everyone 9 o'clock tonight. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Even if you're not, feel free to go there. 9 o'clock tonight behind the Bima. Have a fantastic and a healthy day, everyone.